Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to episode number 824 of the Wicked Library, one we're calling Stocking Stuffers. And of course, that's stocking with an L. So today's episode is a bonus episode, something a little special that we've whipped up for you as a celebration of the season and as our final episode of season eight of the Wicked Library. We do have an episode coming out tomorrow as this airs, Christmas Eve, And that will be our Christmas story for the year. Before we take a little break until February, we're going to be doing some production work. If you think you're going to miss the show too much while we're gone, you can always sign up for a membership or support us on Patreon to keep getting episodes during our break. Otherwise, enjoy your winter break, and we will see you again whenever we come back in February. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dig into those wicked stockings. Today's stories are Sugar Plums by Scarlett R. Algy, told by Mary Murphy. Naughty or Nice by Miracle Austin Told by Nicole Goodnight Silent Night by Lee A. Foreman Told by Nelson W. Piles O Come All Ye Faithless by Nelson W. Piles Told by Yours Truly The Box by Julia Benali Told by Heather Thomas Roasting on an Open Fire by C. Brian Brown Told by Graham Rowett their Eyes All Aglow by Scarlett R. Algy, told by Mary Murphy. Happy Holidays, kiddies! It just wouldn't be a holiday special if there weren't a warning in the beginning, would it? Nope. So here we go. Another Wicked Library content warning. Let's see. There's violence. Check. Gore. Check. Adult content. Oh, check, check. 
That's old language. You bet your mother... Well, check. (laughs) It's just another way of saying, if you're a sensitive listener, then you probably shouldn't be listening, should you? And you shouldn't let your kiddies listen to this either. For those of us who bring the Wicked Library to life for you, all of you who listen, a very happy holidays. Whatever that may mean to you, we appreciate all of you. Enjoy, boils and ghouls! <laughs> Catherine. Dinner was finished and cleared away an hour ago. Ordinarily, this is a part of the festivities where we'd break out the port and exchange token gifts, then sprawl in the living room in front of It's a Wonderful Life, while we digest enough for our stomachs to get interested in dessert. But not tonight. This is one Christmas Eve nobody wants to leave the dining room. Not even the kids. Everybody's antsy. Well, Fred's antsy all the time, anyway. He has been since we were kids. And Jackie... Poor Jackie hasn't been the same since her baby was stillborn. But nobody talks about that. We hadn't been promised a white Christmas, so I guess the snow took us all by surprise. What started out as a light powder when I made my last ditch supply run at seven last night was up to the laces of my shoes when I went out to get the paper this morning, then over ankle deep when the first of the relations... My cousin Mason, fresh from traipsing around India with that new third wife I hadn't known about, who hadn't come with him, had arrived at 9 a.m. Thankfully, everyone else was here by the time the caterers arrived at 2, because we had a foot on the ground by then, and the county had already started closing roads. So I couldn't ask their crew to stay and help with cleanup, even though I'd paid for it. But that's all right. The house is old and a little drafty. I spent dinner watching my candles gutter and my carefully hung LED-lit garlands sway in unseen air currents. But if worse comes to worst, the generator's ready, and so are the upstairs bedrooms. Besides, the kids can play in the snow later. Karen, Ryan, and Liza each brought their respective broods, and it's kind of funny watching almost all of them sulk because the cable's out and the internet's dead and their smartphones can't get a signal out here. Some fresh winter air will be good for them. Welcome to the country, kids. In fact, only Karen's girl Drusella looks anywhere near content, nose deep in a Stephen King novel, just like I was at her age. Smiling to herself every now and then. That smile makes me think she's found her present already. Anything I can do to give her a little relief from Karen's scowls and our cousin Bernard's roaming eyes. Bernie's always been none too subtle about that sort of thing. He's even hit on me this year. So I know Drusella needs looking after before he gets ideas. Anyway, let them wait around the table a little while. I'm the one who sat up last night making beds when I wasn't making pies, preparing for just this eventuality. 
because there's always one or two cousins who've come a long way and want to stay over. Since dinner, I've squirreled myself away in the kitchen, listening to the murmur of family voices with half an ear while I tend to my cakes. The milk chocolate frosting around the border of this ganache-glazed devil's food two-layer isn't going to pipe itself. The fruitcake deserves one last splash of brandy before it's set on fire and paraded around. And the cream cheese brownies in the oven need a little longer to set. Besides, I've always been happier in the kitchen than in there listening to my relatives argue. Well, we don't have arguments in this family. We have animated discussions. At least, that was what Auntie Mavis always called them. Still hard to believe the old lady's gone. The swinging door between kitchen and dining room jostles open. It's my cousin, Sierra. She's already got her hand out and her mouth half open before I lift a finger to my lips and point at the oven with my chin. Sierra snaps her mouth shut and nods and mouths something about the liquor cabinet. Of course... No wonder they're all on edge. I'm the one standing between most of my family and a welcome state of blissful obliviousness to the blizzard outside. I put down my piping bag, fish the keys out of my jeans, and hand them over. Sierra smiles her thanks, but turns to me on her way back out and mouths, They're talking about you, Karen and Devin. I just nod and wave her out, and get back to my frosting. Another quarter circle of scalloped edges, and I can start piping on the holly leaves and berries. It's none of my business. Somebody's always talking about somebody. Still, I take a deep breath and blow it out, just to center myself, then pick up my second piping bag and sidle up to the kitchen door. It sways a little, With every step I make, the house is old, the door sagging in the frame, so I only need a minute or two to confirm Sierra's words. Karen sounds like she got a head start on the booze before she got here. I don't know where she picked up this friend, Devin Holt. She's got a husband in Afghanistan, for God's sake. But this fellow's no prize, too opinionated, too sure of himself. Not enough to look at. He's what Auntie Mavis would have called a little banty rooster. She never could stand a man who liked to hear himself talk. Then I catch my name. And oh, yeah, those two are really holding court. It's Catherine this and Kathy that. Cat and Katie. Interspersed with a few muttered words here and there from Mason and Ryan. I'd go back in there and light into all of them with a wooden spoon if I didn't know what they were talking about. If only to make them get my damned name right. Of course, as Sierra had said, it's me. More to the point, it's me and the house. I glance at the oven and lean closer to the door. I never wanted this house. Growing up, Coming here with my parents to auntie's Christmas dinners, I flat-out hated the place. Too big. Too cold. No color TV. 
no respite from big sister Karen pulling my hair and poking me in the belly and calling me Katie Puff, just because I was plump when I was 12. She had a nasty nickname for almost everyone back then. In fact, she still does, but it hurt all the same. And the Christmases when we'd spent the night... If you told me back then that this sprawling old draft funnel was haunted, I'd almost have believed it, especially after the Christmas morning when I'd found a black widow iced to the bedroom window. Auntie had tried to spook me about it, with one of her daft old stories about that witch, Frau Percata, but as much as I loved her, I'd never been able to put much stock in that nonsense. A frozen spider gave me a frizzen of uneasiness, but in the end, it was just a frozen spider. So, nope, I never wanted this house. I always suspected Aunt Mavis didn't want it either, but she was single and childless when her parents died, and her brothers and sisters had all married and moved on by then. So she was stuck with the house and with the Christmas dinners, by virtue of having so much free time on her hands. But when Mavis had slipped on a patch of ice and broken her hip back last February, I'd been the one who'd taken a break from teaching and moved in to look after her. None of the others had bothered. After all, she wasn't their mother. She wasn't mine, either. But I stayed. I cooked and cleaned and helped Auntie with her baths and her walker drove her into town three days a week so she could get physical therapy while I bought groceries and found a Wi-Fi hotspot and tried to keep tabs on how the substitutes were doing in my absence. Hell, that's how I picked up cake decorating. I could talk to parents via email, give out assignments and exams online, and still get paid. But I had to do something those four months so I wouldn't go stir-crazy out here. When Mavis died in June, bedridden from pneumonia after a second fall at the PT facility, the entire clan turned out, but I think I was the only one who actually cried during the funeral. I hadn't liked the house any better by then, but the few months I'd had with my aunt had been good ones. When Mavis died in June, I'd been as surprised as everyone else, when I'd found out Mavis had left me the house and its contents, provided I kept up the annual Christmas dinners. That was her only provision. I guess because she'd somehow actually enjoyed the damn things. And Lord, that was when the shit had started. Liza and Karen crowed about the chandeliers, the antique furniture, and the contents of the china cabinet and silverware drawer. Mason swore I'd get a good deal if I'd sell the house right away and split the wooded adjoining lot into parcels that could be cleared and built on. Hard to believe that only six months ago, he'd still been on wife number two. Ryan, God bless him, just pointed out that I had to pick up teaching again in August. And really, didn't I want my old ten-minute commute back instead of the ninety-minute one I'd have living in this rat trap? I'd almost given in when Ryan brought up the commute. By then, I'd gotten kind of fond of this place, but not really fond enough for a three-hour round-trip drive every day. 
In fact, he'd almost talked me into saying to hell with all of it, especially after Karen said she knew people who'd make the process painless. Too bad she decided to call me Katie Puff when she said it. I just might not have slapped her silly right there in the lawyer's office. Might not have informed them all that I'd been the one who looked after Mavis, damn it. And with 60000 in student loan debt still over my head at the age of 29, I wasn't about to turn down a free house. Something thunks against the dining room wall. It sounds like a fist. It makes a kitchen door vibrate. Involuntarily, I squeeze my piping bag, and green buttercream leaks onto my knuckles. I lick it off just as the oven timer dings. Not my problem if the wretched fools are killing each other in there. I turn off the oven, add a few last flourishes to the cake, and find the matches and brandy for the fruitcake, then slip on my mitts and open the oven door to get the brownies. No. My job's just to take the alcohol away, shove sugar down everybody's throats, send them off to bed to sleep it off, and hopefully, hopefully, get rid of them all in the morning. But only until next year. Merry Christmas to me. I've got my head half in the oven, wrestling with the brownie pans when the kitchen door swings wide. I hear quick, skidding footsteps, but I can't twist around properly without setting my hair on fire. With a pan of brownies in each hand, I straighten up and turn around and... Drusella. All was never calm in my late Aunt Mavis's house at Christmas time. Devin Holt's black, furtive eyes made extra sure of that with his undressing games. His octopus hands were an extra annual Christmas bonus for me each year. So many fake people filled her house. The only good things that I looked forward to were Aunt Catherine's delicious brownies and her spooky stories from when she was younger. I wish that Aunt Catherine could have been my mom instead of Karen the Scrooge, whose dark and cold heart never changed after her ghost visits. It seemed I could never do anything that met her standards. Criticism danced off her lips every time she spoke out loud about anyone, especially me, her primary target. My weight became the big issue when I didn't make the cheer team in fifth grade. Ever since then, she's attempted to control everything that I ate. The holidays were the worst for me. If she ever caught me eating something off her approved list, then I would hear, Drusella, now you don't want to become a Drusella puff like my sister was around your age. You'll never get a nice-looking boyfriend. She poked me in my tummy with her finger, and a deep joker-like laugh followed. All that was missing was the green hair, milky white face paint, and sinister smile. I cannot count how many times I cried myself to sleep from Karen's cruel remarks about my body. My dad used to tell me that I was beautiful and I didn't need to change anything, unless I chose to, which really pissed her off. He's been gone for over six months now. Dad was called off for a classified military assignment in Afghanistan. I've written him several letters. No responses back yet. 
Karen told me that I'm wasting my time because he's forgotten about us. I don't care what she says. I, I know he loves me and he'll answer me when he gets the chance. So, as you can probably guess, I wasn't looking forward to the road trip with her and my younger brother and sister, Sam and Gertrude. I could deal with them just fine, just not Karen. As we were driving, the snow started falling hard to the point where Karen had to turn on the windshield wipers at the highest speed. Through all the years I've traveled to Great Aunt Mavis's home, I'd never seen snow like this. You should know now that I'm a huge Stephen King fan, and I've read nearly all of his books. In fact, I'm rereading The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon now, but the snowstorm reminded me of Storm of the Century, an eerie miniseries that I'd seen at my BFF's house last summer. Karen despised me reading. She made comments how I could be exercising rather than absorbing calories in my non-active state. I had to sneak and read, mostly at night with my cell phone flashlight under my covers. I kept my books hidden in a special place in my closet where she would never discover. Aunt Catherine always slipped my Christmas gift to me. Usually a Barnes & Noble gift card, either in person or by sneaking it into my backpack. She told me how she couldn't keep up with my reading list, so it would be best for me to pick out what I wanted. I so appreciated this. I usually purchased four or five books from the card she gave me each year. I happened to glance at the sign as we slowly drove by. It was about 20 more miles from Hollowsville, Vermont. Karen was driving about 15 miles per hour, and the other cars were driving a little slower than she was. I looked back. Sam and Gertrude were both asleep with their iPads in their laps, so I reached back to turn their movies off. Karen and I hardly communicated during the entire trip. However, she didn't forget to remind me to eat the frozen meals and snacks that she packed just for me. Almost an hour had passed, and we were still a few miles away. Gigantic snowflakes slammed against the window and burst into thousand frozen pieces before the windshield wipers swooped them off. Lighting up her cancer stick, Karen cracked the window a few inches. As I reached over to crack my window, she slapped my hand and gave me the look. My window remained closed. The smell of nicotine made me nauseous. I tried to hold my breath as long as I possibly could before I had to exhale. She would sometimes blow smoke in my face on purpose and laugh under her rum-marinated breath. Before she could finish, we arrived in the front of the house. It was just like I remembered it from last year. Two stories, crying for a fresh paint job, and slimy-colored vomit-green shingles that needed to be replaced. Most of the cars were completely covered in snow. Colored Christmas lights decorated the entire perimeter of the roof. I opened the door so I could finally breathe. Snow covered my monster-high rain boots, almost to the top of my knees. Wetness began to seep through my leopard leggings. Sam and Gertrude woke up. Karen peeled Gertrude from the seat and tossed her on her hip. I walked to the back of the car to help Sam. I turned around and he jumped on my back. He wasn't that heavy yet. I carried him until we reached a cleared sidewalk, which was being shoveled by Devon. Sam slid down and ran over to give him a hug. Karen winked and embraced him a little too close. Then she kissed him near his quivering plum lips. He looked at me and motioned me over. I took my time walking towards him. I would have liked to have given him a swift kick, you know where, but Karen was standing next to him and a few family members were watching from the large window like visitors at a zoo. Devin pulled me in really close to his chest, which reeked of heavy cigar smoke and cheap aftershave. His stinky tentacles ran down over my shoulders as he squeezed them hard then down my back, and almost near. 
I don't know where the large icicle came from, but I pulled back and it pierced his right hand. Blood squirted out onto the snow. Stepping back, I noticed Karen's ghostly face. Devin yelped and pulled a gray furry scarf from around his neck, wrapped it around his hand, and scurried inside the house. She followed behind him. As I walked by the stained snow, I noticed two bloody words. Soon, sinner. I looked towards the window and pointed at the snow. The spectators shrugged their shoulders and mouthed, What? There's nothing there. Cousin Ryan came out. He hugged me and we went to our car to retrieve the bags and gifts. He walked right past the bloody snow and said nothing. When I looked again, the words had vanished, but the bloody stain remained, soaking further down, deep into the snow. Shaking the snow off my boots, I walked into the house. The wooden floors made a crackling sound as I stepped down. My fuzzy pink thermal socks were dry. I decided to change clothes before I found Aunt Catherine. Before I could reach one of the bathrooms, several family members stopped and hugged me. A few planted wet kisses on my cheeks. I wiped the saliva residue off with a tissue from my pocket. It was the best I could do until I could lock myself in a bathroom in order to perform my personal decontamination. After passing about 20 family members or so, I finally saw an opportunity to grab my suitcase and backpack. I found a bathroom upstairs to perform my Christmas ritual. I felt refreshed after a shower. As I was brushing my hair up in a ponytail, I noticed something outside the window. I walked over to get a closer look. It was a huge black widow spider, frozen against the window pane. Stumbling backwards from the white oval bathtub with silver bear claw feet, I recalled a story that Aunt Catherine told me about when she was around my age, about finding a similar frozen spider on her window. I couldn't remember the details, but remembered it was a sign for something awful. I gathered up my bath essentials and hung my wet clothes on an empty towel bar behind the tub. Aunt Catherine always allowed me to stay in her room over the two days. I walked down the hall and made her right. Her room was adorned with dragonfly decorations. A plush rollaway bed with extra blankets was set out for me. A red envelope and a clear-wrapped brownie rested on top of the fluffy pillow. Shutting the door, I placed my suitcase in the corner and sat down on the bed. My backpack rested near my feet. I opened up the envelope and pulled out a card with a folded sheet of paper. It was a Christmas card from Aunt Catherine, and inside was her usual gift, a $50 gift card from Barnes & Noble, with a black key taped onto the front of the gift card. I smiled. The card made sense, but not the key. I opened up the letter and read. Drew, something terrible has happened here, again. The sinners will soon be punished by Frau Percata, a powerful witch who hands out gruesome punishments to sinners, starting tomorrow, Christmas night. You'll not want to be here when she unleashes her fury. A snowmobile is waiting for you in the barn with further directions in a green envelope located inside the right compartment. Go. Get away from here now. I hope to meet you. Be careful and trust no one. Love, Aunt Cat. Folding the letter up in the card, I placed it in the brownie inside my backpack. The smell of smoke crept under the doorway, and I started coughing. I walked towards the window to open it. As I stared out the frosted window, snow began to fall heavier than earlier, with high winds screeching along the glass. I walked up closer to the window, pressing my palms against the cold glass, and saw the back door swing open. 
Someone dressed in a hooded camouflage snow bib with black gloves and goggles shot out from the door and ran in the knee-deep snow in a crooked pattern towards the barn. Fred! What I always hated the most about holidays, the stink of them, unfortunate shared genetic material, inedible dead birds cooked to a morbid crisp, the intolerable chattering catastrophe of noise comprised of meaningless trash. My throat lurched at the doorstep of every family gathering. But a smart boy knows how to act. Indifferent to environment, all too caring of the metaphysical. I clasped my hands, prayed, ate what I was told to eat, even smiled. I finished school, got a job. It's not that hard if you play the right cards. Helps to have a few up your sleeve just in case. It was hard to ignore the silverware placed so carefully on the table. There were enough knives for everyone. My neck itched, but I refrained from scratching. Any distraction helped keep my feet on the narrow path. I only strayed when appropriate, when needed. As the evening went on, that appropriateness seemed closer and closer to probable cause. Especially when Karen went off and brought up Fred Weasel. I hated that fucking name. I never cared for her stupid nicknames. It was born from childhood, when I once caught a weasel and wanted to keep it as a pet. Mom wouldn't allow it, of course, so I kept it in the shed my father warned us never to touch. Not like he used it himself. It just sat for years, filled with the same junk that was in it since probably before I was born. I brought the weasel food, leftovers from dinner, gave it a fresh bowl of water every morning. But one day... When I went to check on him, he was gone. And Karen, visiting for the weekend, got to spit taunts and throw metaphorical stones at me while I cried my eyes dry. I never forgave her for that. I looked out the window. Another distraction was needed. The snow was coming down hard. Before night was through, we'd be snowed in. And everyone would be too liquored up to leave anyway. They'll be stuck in this house with me tonight. All night. There's a knife on the table for everyone. I turned and ignored the snow. Too many ideas came of its potential to keep people where they were. I thought whether or not I'd had these urges at past Christmas gatherings. Their repetition was confirmed in seconds. How could I forget all the times I watched the turkey being carved? imagining other things. But Mavis always kept me in line. She was the only one I cared about of the sorry lot of filth which I shared lineage. For her sake, I kept my hobby separate from the family. Unfortunately, she was gone. I knew I'd miss her, but so many closed doors were now transparent. Opportunity was ringing in my ears like holiday bells in the hands of old men in red suits on street corners. I could kill the whole damn lot. The itch grew. 
A voice I'd never heard scraped my lobes with blissful cruelty. Soon, sinner. What? I replied aloud without thinking. Assuming I'd been listening to her story, Karen raised her voice above the din of bullshit to say she wasn't talking to me. She always had to throw in her two cents. My jaw tightened. I took a deep breath. She squinted her eyes at me and continued telling whatever half-made-up story she was in the middle of. I never thought I'd actually commit parricide. But killing this rotten family seemed like a favor to the world. Not that I wanted to do anyone any favors, but hell, it would be fun. I'd shown up long before anyone else, as I always did for social gatherings. A hunter must know their surroundings before going into them. The snow outside was quickly becoming a wall keeping us in. The only easy way out was a snowmobile I discovered in the barn. I'll soon remedy that solution, I thought. I had no idea if it ran or not, but I'd make extra sure it didn't. I felt my pocket to make sure I had my cigarettes. I was never big on smoking, but they were a perfect excuse to get away for a few minutes when needed, without drawing suspicion. I never went anywhere without them. I'm going for a smoke, I said, standing from the table. No one bothered acknowledging me. I slipped on my coat and stepped outside into the storm. The porch stairs had already been swallowed by the snow. I made the plunge into the knee-deep white and moved as quickly as I could toward the barn. It made me think of trying to run away from something in a nightmare. No matter how hard you try, you just can't go any faster. I wondered if that was how my victims felt before I caught up with them. I turned and looked back to the house to make sure no one was watching me. I couldn't see clearly into the windows with the frigid wind in my eyes, but no one was outside. I opened the barn door just enough to slip in and stared at the snowmobile with delight. Precious salvation from my hands. It would be no more. I lifted the hood to expose the engine and took my buck knife from my pocket. I loved the click it made every time I opened it. It was given to me by my father. They always say people like me have traumatic childhoods and are raised by terrible parents, but I loved my father. He had nothing to do with my career of choice. Its finely sharpened blade cut through wires with no effort. I closed the hood, secured it, stepped back, and lit a cigarette. Taking a few puffs, I held it near to me, let the stench permeate my clothes. In my line of work, even a cigarette break required an alibi. Kill the sinner. I looked around the barn, startled by the voice. Who's in here? The only reply was the howl of wind outside. I held my knife low behind my hand, out of sight. Whoever was there with me might have seen what I did. They had to be silenced. The barn door opened and in came Nick, my bastard cousin. I took a long drag off my cigarette and blew smoke in his direction. What the hell do you want? He only stood there, mouth closed tight, a growing discontent flashing in his eyes. What, can't you see I'm having a smoke here? Give a man some privacy. He began heading toward me. Death itself followed at his heels. My fingers gripped the knife with firm anticipation. 
You really want to star with me, Nick? He kept coming. All right, your choice. I grabbed his collar with my left hand and stuck him in the gut with my right. His blood warmed my cold fingers. Struggled croaks forced their way from his throat as his eyes went wide. I savored the shock a dying person experienced during the first moments before their mind could intercept what was happening. The lack of physical pain allowed them to concentrate on me, my face, my words. I put my face close to his. Sorry, Nick, but it's time you go. Nothing personal, but the Reaper followed you into this house, out here to this barn, and into my waiting arms. This was meant to be. I pulled the knife out and inserted it again, deeper. He gasped, as if more surprised by the second insertion. You can go quiet, peaceful. I like the silence, Nick, I really do. I'm going to quiet down a lot of people tonight. You hear them talking away in there? I gotta make it stop. I felt his chest rise and fall, counting the seconds between breaths as it became slower and slower. I rested my head against him and listened to his heart until it stopped. Such wonderful silence. Kill the sinner. It was then I realized the voice spoke inside my head. Something was guiding me, helping with my work. I couldn't deny the mysterious benefactor. Catherine? I asked the voice. I took the lack of reply as confirmation of my fine-tuned instincts. Stubbing the cigarette out with my boot, I headed outside and trudged my way through the snow, back to the house to kill the sinner. To kill all the sinners. Bernard. I come every year. And I'd like to say I don't know why. I'd like to say I don't. But I do. The girls know it too. Oh, and how. This year is a little bit different. Even little Bernie knows the score this year. There's no Aunt Mavis, thank Christ. And less judgment if only by one, than last year. That's a big deal for the family scumbag, which I've been, it seems, forever. Not that I'm actually a scumbag, although I could see why that would float around. Is it a scumbag thing to try to get with your second cousins? I mean, it's not like they're my sisters. The stupid bloodline we all share isn't so fragile it's tainted with some similar genes. Besides, I got clipped ages ago. I'm not spreading the family seed. Not intentionally. Not ever. And I do love my cousins so. I only get to see them here for the most part. I've tried to keep up with them outside the Christmas get-togethers. I had moderate success with Drew. <sighs> Drusella. Sweet girl. Total piece of ass. 
Wait, that wasn't nice. Even if it is the damn truth. (sighs) Maybe I am a scumbag. At least I'm sincere, unlike Drew's mother, Karen. To be honest, I think the one thing that unites all of us who make this damn trip every year is just how much we absolutely loathe Karen. On that, we can all agree. I think sometimes my pursuit of Drew at this point is to utterly get under Karen's thinning skin. For that alone, you'd think I'd be some kind of hero, as... Nothing else seems to irk that bitch more than my mere existence. (sighs) That's me projecting. I'm not a hero. I know what I am. And this year, I'm simply more of the same. I'll be honest. I really don't like anyone here. Most of all, Karen. I have less of a dislike of Drew, although... That's probably because she's attractive and doesn't like her mother any more than the rest of us. Kathy was okay until she got Aunt Mavis's house. Still don't get that. I mean, she knew I was practically homeless. You'd think she'd invite me to live here? Hell no. Granted, she didn't invite anyone else to live here either. I wonder sometimes if it's just me. Maybe I am the asshole. Maybe everyone's right about me being a scumbag. But walking into Aunt Mavis' living room covered in snow and shame, I realized that scumbag or not, I wasn't the asshole who brought the chick dressed like a Christmas tree. Score one for Bernie. The Christmas tree chick smiles at me. I look at her and I smile right the hell back. I think it'll be the best Christmas ever. Then... I hear Devin. Absolutely no idea where Karen dug up this asshole. It looks like he was changing into a werewolf and then just said, Fuck it. Harry bastard. I'm the family scumbag? Karen's voice cuts through like a chainsaw in a kindergarten. It would be funny if she weren't such a bitch. Kathy's in the kitchen, making God knows what. The adults sit around slowly drinking themselves into some sort of reality where we wouldn't all argue after dinner. But the Christmas tree chick was a nice touch. I made a few decoration jokes and got some smiles from her and scowls from everyone else, except Drew. She was dependable that way. Drew would throw a couple little smiles my way, too. I'm glad I wore a long shirt and the two large corduroys. Good for hiding my joy. The food. Fucking terrible. The company, more so. I only managed to rub one out during dinner. It was so tense. Corduroys, remember? (sighs) I sat with the really shitty wine, allowing it to take hold of my senses, smiling where I thought it appropriate, and said almost nothing. I looked at my family. I grinned and nodded and waited for the arguing to begin. I noticed Mason looking all fidgety, more than usual, more than the usual closeted gay. I don't know why he bothers hiding it. Who gives a good goddamn anymore? Oh, wait, this shitty family. Not that Mason is some kind of hero. 
Yeah, scarfed and gay, but he's still an asshole, just like all of them. I'm not delusional. I know I'm an asshole, too. I just rubbed one out at the table, after all. But I'm not their kind of asshole. I'm just another scumbag. Another scumbag with nothing to say, as I always have been. (sighs) Smile and wink and nod and listen to the bullshit echo around the dining room. It's all bullshit. Wonder where the box is. Wonder exactly where it is and about all the fun stuff in the box. Kathy asked about it earlier, and I told her no one had even bothered it since Mavis had found her bucket to kick. She's got something in mind for it, though. And before I waltz the fuck out of here when the snow clears up, I'll have it, along with some satisfaction. Not carnal, although that's always on the menu. Maybe both. Hell, it's Christmas after all. Time for miracles. Time for Bernie. I grab the shitty wine bottle and empty it into my glass. I ask where there's more and I'm met with a sea of empty faces and blank stares. Drew, I say, and she looks up from her book. Want to help old Bernie find some wine? I notice the Christmas tree chick seems offended that I didn't ask her. What could I do? was still in my refractory stage from dinner, if you know what I mean. Drew hesitates and puts the book down. She stands up and, damn, she is still so fine. Lust was going to have to wait. I needed her to actually find the wine by looking wherever I was sure the wine wasn't. She'd look and I'd snoop for that box. I wasn't leaving without it this year. More importantly, no one else was leaving, period, ever again. Not even the Christmas tree chick. Jackie! Wow. I must have been a brown dot in a sea of white. Everybody was blonde or brunette and blue-eyed. They all dressed the same, too, except for the one weirdo in the Christmas tree costume. Of course, she was brown like me. Way to represent, you loud-mouthed apple. Of course, there was Bernard, drooling all over her. He wasn't even concerned about the box. He said it hadn't been bothered since July. But there was nobody to bother it until this stupid reunion. Those stupid cooks would find it, open it, and... Yeah, I had to get it. Especially Katie. I didn't know what she was doing in the kitchen when she had caterers come over. Just because stink Aunt Mavis gave her the stupid house, she suddenly became cook of the year, quit teaching, and threw her life away in this spider-infested house. It was poked with so many holes that it looked like Swiss cheese. I couldn't sneak away. These losers would see me. (laughs) A big family, indeed. I didn't see a hundred people. There were like ten of them. How was I supposed to sneak away from that? If there were five hundred, I could. 
How was I related to so many people? Somebody got switched at birth, and it was probably me. Little Jackie, who looked nothing like her mom or dad. Unless my mom cheated, and I actually look like my birth dad. I asked around. Sierra said I was adopted. Karen said she was a liar. Bernard got turned on. It almost stopped the reunions altogether. That was about the time that Bernard said nobody was really related and started going wild with the cousins. I sidled along the wall and hid behind the nastiest curtain on the face of the planet. Holy crap, this was a reunion. Didn't anybody hear about hiring a cleanup crew? The mummified bodies of spiders long past fell on my head. Oh yeah, I forgot. They were probably Aunt Mavis's pets. They were part of the family. I had just gotten my hair done, too. This was all Bernard's fault. I saw him making eyes at every dumb chick who glanced his way. Even the fugly ones. He was even looking at Karen's girl. I didn't know what the crap her name was, and I didn't care. She showed up acting all innocent, but over there flouncing around in those leggings and showing off her curves. I had her number. Bernard would have told her everything. I wanted to scream at him, but I needed to maintain secrecy. Nobody saw me as I crawled under a chair. The bimbo who sat on it had a circus tent fit for a ball on. Karen. Ugh. Couldn't she wear something better? She kept talking to that loser, Devin Holt, as if she was interesting. He didn't even look at her. The butt face was rude like that, though, just because he thought he was tall, dark, and handsome. Well, he wasn't, and he always ignored me. I pulled the hair on his furry leg to show what I thought of him. He jumped so high that he fell off his chair. I laughed so hard. Slipping under the table the caterers had brought, I crawled to the door leading into the kitchen. People were going in and out, especially Katie. I mean, what for? It was probably to hide from everybody, because she had this nice house, and everybody was jealous. Karen wasn't even talking about her. Karen only talked about herself. That's all she ever did. That's good, though. She never gossips that way. She also liked to sneak into the kitchen to steal liquor. If she could beat Sierra to it. Holy crap, if they were smart like me, they would have stuck a bottle of Popov in their boots, and then they wouldn't have to go around looking like smashed boozers. They were going to find the box with all this digging around. I couldn't let them. Looking left and right, I stumbled through the door and walked right into Katie. Her mouth was tight. What did this mean? What if she'd found the box? What if... Too many ifs to go around. I shoved her down. 
It was just a spur-of-the-moment thing. How was I supposed to know that she had an eggshell for a head? She knocked it on the hard floor, and all this blood came out. I kicked her for being such a weakling. Nobody liked her anyway. It wasn't like I killed her. Still, this wasn't good. I dragged her into the pantry and went about my business. It was a good thing that nobody was coming through the doors. There would have been a lot of explaining to do. After some serious sneaking, I reached the walk-in freezer. It was almost like a room of its own back behind the kitchen. Aunt Mavis had used it, up until she added a different freezer, easier to reach. She didn't much like the back freezer. I heard her say there was a child humming back there. (laughs) What a superstitious old witch. I never heard anything. There was still some junk in the freezer, and it had made the perfect hiding spot. I hurried in and closed the door, but left it open a sliver. No use getting locked in. All the people pranced around as if this were such a merry Christmas. But I knew about them. They were just waiting to find my box. I knew they were snooping. It was the only reason that they'd gathered from all over the world. Oh, they pretended to admire the shiny decorations as they complimented the caterers and admired the velvety dresses but it was all a mask. Nobody in their right mind would come to this place where their precious phones couldn't work. Those brats whining about Wi-Fi were getting on my nerves. Hadn't Katie seen that commercial about clear views of the southern sky junk? I closed the freezer door, stacking boxes of frozen goods in front of it so that nobody could sneak up on me. I chuckled, my voice falling cold on the frosty air. It hardly felt any different from the rest of the house. Katie really needed to fix it. I don't think Aunt Mavis liked her. That old woman was like that fruitcake in the kitchen. All gross, nothing but nuts, smelly, and full of alcohol. I dug through rock-hard meat kegs of ice cream, leftover food from last March, and finally I shoved aside a crate of frosty carrots. There was my precious box. Stupid Bernard was supposed to be with me, but whatever. He was probably wondering which STD he could catch from his cousins. The box once carried Bernard's size 10 shoes, but I'd fixed it. With more pink crayons than I could count, I had colored plain white construction paper pink on both sides. I had glued that paper to the outside of the shoebox. Of course, it had rough edges, but what doesn't? I had fixed that in a snap by gluing pink lace over every rough spot. Green, black, brown, and gold buttons covered the top. With some black paint. Because black looks good with pink. I'd painted flowers and smiley faces all over it. It was the perfect box. 
slipping the box under my arm. I turned to leave, but stopped. There was the hag, black eyes and a craggy face, peering at me through a crack in the door. She slipped her corrugated hand into the freezer and beckoned to me. I had almost forgotten. I needed to burn the box. I crept out of the giant fridge. It was too cold and snowy outside to start a fire, and I couldn't burn the box in the fireplace. Everybody was gathered around it. I went upstairs, where nobody was lurking around. I went into a spare bedroom. She was crouched in a corner like a goblin, dark folds of her skirts gathered around her feet. She said not a word, but pointed at the bed with a long, chipped nail. I knew what she wanted, and set the box on the bed. Taking out my lighter, I moved to set the box on fire, but stopped. It was much too pretty to burn. Maybe I could keep it for something, like secret love letters. It was what was inside that needed to go. Tiny flames glimmered in the hag's eyes, but she didn't understand the work I'd put into the box. She could wait. Opening the box, I pulled out a bundle of soft, ice-cold blankets. I cracked the blankets apart at the top to see the purple baby's sunken eyes. My dried blood was still frozen to its head. The fire would warm it up. Setting the box on the end table, I lit the bed on fire. The flames rushed across the blankets and over the pink bundle. Seizing the box, I sauntered out the door and smoke puffed into the hall. I walked down the stairs and slipped out into the snow as if nothing had happened. Nobody would suspect a thing. Mason! You can't pick your family, but you sure as hell can fucking kill them. Or to be more precise, let them die a horrible death and not lift a finger to help. It's the small things that make life such a grand spectacle. But sometimes it's the big stuff. Like the house fire on Christmas Eve when there's no internet or cell service and the only landline is a wall-hanging rotary job in the kitchen. I haven't seen one of those in... Well, since I was here last Christmas Eve. We've been standing on the lawn... The still falling snow well above our ankles, watching the flames flicker behind several windows on the upper story. The cold air smelled like a campfire, tickling my nose even as it sliced at my lungs. A small fraction of us seemed to be missing. Catherine hadn't come out yet, and no one had volunteered to go in and find her. Karen's oldest was missing too, though Karen didn't seem overly concerned. Of course, she might not have even noticed, considering she'd been glued to that guy Devon all night. Ryan had come up to me, slapping his arms for warmth. He was breathing heavily. His breath plumed white and trailed away into nothing over his shoulder. 
He asked me whose room was burning. I didn't know. I thought it was a spare room and told him so. The smartass said they were all spare rooms, cracking on the size of the house and the fact that only Catherine lived here. I shrugged. Ryan reminded me of my second ex-wife, always busy with the specifics, never a generalization. She'd ask me what time it was, and I'd round to the nearest 15 minutes, and she'd correct me, giving me the exact goddamn time. And really, if she were going to look at the clock anyway, why ask the question? But that was Ryan, too, getting an answer and then explaining exactly why you were wrong. My third wife, however, was something special. I found her in India, and she hardly speaks a word of English. So far, all she'd learned to say with any regularity was, Okay, and more wine. And if those are all she ever learns, I'd be fine. I left her back in the city with three bottles of Moscato and a credit card. She'd survive. It was the rest of us that might not. He remarked the whole house was going to burn down due to the fact the cell service sucked and no one in our family wanted to risk anything by actually driving in this shit weather. Of course, none of this would have been an issue if Catherine had just sold the house like I suggested. He spread his arms and trudged away through the snow. I gave the finger to his retreating back and fought a whole body shiver. The snow had soaked through my boots and the lower legs of my jeans. My toes, numb and frozen, wouldn't respond to my mental commands demanding they wiggle. No one had wanted to drive. No one had wanted to go in the burning house, and the probability we'd all freeze to death grew exponentially the longer it snowed. I couldn't spend my share of the insurance money if I died out here on the lawn. I pulled my feet up out of their snow burrows and followed after Ryan, not believing what I was about to do. Ryan had stopped near Liza, and the two stood with their heads together, thick as thieves, same as it had always been. I called out to Ryan and Liza as I approached them. They were like wild animals. If you surprised them, they were just as likely to bite your face off as they were to lick it. I told them we were going to freeze to death if we just stood here. Everyone was calm. Thank God for school and corporate fire drills. But I've learned there's such a thing as too calm. Liza asked me if I was going to run away, like I always did. I gave her the finger and told her I wanted to go into town to get help, and Ryan, that ever-helpful smartass, asked me if I planned on walking, considering the consistent downpour of snow. No, I wasn't going to walk. I had remembered Mavis kept a couple of snowmobiles in the barn for the kids. I planned on taking one of them, but I needed to know where she kept the keys. Getting them to tell me where the keys were had proved to be more difficult than it should have been. A few more jabs. I'm not the hero type because I'm not the hetero type. And they told me Mavis kept them on apron hooks in the kitchen pantry. I almost believed these two idiots wanted to die out here, and not for the first time, I lamented being related to them. Ryan had refused to accompany me, and I could only assume that hetero didn't equal hero either. At the door, I had padded the handle. Fire safety 101. The metal knob, still cool to the touch, twisted easily, and the door had groaned as it opened. Smoke, having escaped the upper floor, coiled around the ceiling. Every so often, tendrils flared out toward the floor, pushed by the growing heat. The smell had overpowered my senses. My eyes watered, and I covered my nose with my shirt's collar. 
but there was something other than just burning house. A faint metallic scent, the way our kitchen smelled when Dad boiled pennies. I hurried through the foyer and into the dining room, where thicker, blacker smoke filled the air. The ceiling paint above me bubbled and dripped, each blob splattering and painting the dining room table with yellowish-white splotches. Cursing, I had dropped to my hands and knees and crawled under the table. Scrabbling over the hardwood, toward the door between the kitchen and dining room, my stomach cramped and, as déjà vu overwhelmed me, I started dry heaving. I'd been here, in this spot, looking at the kitchen door not too long ago, needing to get in there. Desperation had choked me, crowding out rational thought and focused me on... That was ridiculous, though. Earlier, before the fire, I'd been in the den with Sam and Gert. They'd been playing on their various devices while their mother had been trying to get in Devon's pants. Tit for tat, she called it, stating she knew for a fact that her husband was putting his pee in as much desert V as he could. The man had decided to put his life on the line in defense of our country, and in my humble opinion, that gave him the right to fuck whomever he wanted, including me. And if Karen wanted to let that shabby-ass Devin Holt up in her, so be it. The deja vu passed as fast as it came, and when it did, I'd pushed forward, shoving aside chairs and toys. I hit the kitchen door with the top of my head. I pushed it open and collapsed onto my side, breathing hard. The heat had ratcheted up, partly due to the fire, but also because of the open oven. The smoke had continued to accumulate, gathering more and more of the breathable air for itself, and I had forced myself to my feet, orienting myself to find the pantry. And there, lying on the floor, bookending a nice-sized puddle of blood, were two pans of brownies. Catherine's brownies. What in the actual fuck is going on? I wondered. Something banged on the pantry door from the inside, making it hop in its frame. A scream lodged in my throat, but I needed the snowmobile keys. Stealing myself for anything, I'd reached out and flung the pantry door open. Catherine stared up at me from the floor, a wide crack parting the front of her forehead. Blood coated her face and expensive shirt. Her left eye rolled lazily in its dented socket. Her lips moved, and I think she mouthed the words, Help me, but I couldn't hear anything over the roar of the fire. And let's face it, I didn't much care what she'd said. You can't pick your family, but you sure as hell can fucking kill them. Or to be more precise, let them die a horrible death and not lift a finger to help. You should have sold the house and split the money, I think, now as I step over her, searching for the keys. I fling aside the aprons and find empty hooks. No keys. Catherine's mouth opens and a line of bloody drool spills down her chin. I curse at the grotesque sight and, knowing I'm not going to find the keys, I step back out and close the pantry door. Catherine bangs on it once, weakly, and falls silent. Once she's gone, the house and land will go into probate, get sold, and the proceeds split. It should have happened when Mavis died, but some folks are sensitive to a fault. I grab a large kitchen towel and press it against my mouth and nose as a makeshift air filter. 
I hurry through the dining room and back into the living room. The front door, which I left open, is shut. The smoke, thick and heavy now, obscures my vision and sneaks past the towel into my lungs. Moving fast, I hit the door and grab the handle. The metal sears my skin. I jerk away, leaving my palm behind and crash over an end table. I hit the floor and nearly explode, as one would expect from a fleshy meat sack dropped from six feet in the air. The towel escapes my grip, and I lose it somewhere under the couch. I crawl around, whimpering, trying to find it before the damaging smoke swells my lungs and airways. The déjà vu returns, dragging me toward the stairs, my eyes glancing furtively in all directions. I can't be caught. This one truth burns a hole in my soul. People say love is the most powerful force on the planet, and I've always disagreed. It's fear. Fear drives people more than love. It always has and always will. I don't know whose fear has invaded me, but it drives me up the stairs. The heat dries my skin, stretches it painfully across my bones. I open my mouth, taking in both smoke and heat, the two shutting my lungs down. These notions cross my mind, but I move forward anyway, breath hitching, unable to do anything but utter inarticulate, guttural sounds from deep in my pained chest. Fire ripples along the walls, evil red dragons plotting destruction. Their heads exhale more flame that melts wallpaper, devours the drywall, and warps the house's wooden bones. The skin on my arms cracks. The blood boils as it emerges, and I push into the spare bedroom where the fire started. A woman stands in the corner, the fire birthing from between her legs. Old rotten teeth greet me with a churlish grin. Her eyes, as black as her teeth, meet mine. Averting my gaze, I move to the burning remains of the bed. I plunge my arms into the middle of the fire, cradling it, trying to coo and failing. The flames ignore my strange noises and instead scream themselves as they work their ravenous teeth through my clothes and to my flesh. The foreign driving fear is gone, as is the old woman, both dissipated on the winds of fear. My fear. I find my voice works just fine, at least until my vocal cords rupture. Twisting wildly, I charge the window and leap. Glass shatters, snow and cold soothe me, and the ground is kind enough to put me to sleep. Honey, the food was actually bearable this year. Smart move on Katie's part. Practically genius. As soon as that upstairs window shattered, Devin squeezed my arm and told me he was trekking back toward the main road to see if his phone could get a signal. Good idea. Somebody has to call the authorities. I have to at least make it look like I tried to do the right thing. Even while I slink back to the edge of the tree line 
and hope nobody misses me. It's almost fun, watching the house burn. I say almost, because I look at the crowd of us gathered out here in the snow, most hovering around Mason after his decidedly flamboyant exit from that window. And I don't see my kids. I don't see Fred either. Or Jackie. And definitely not Katie. Excuse me. Catherine. Ph.D. She wouldn't want any of us to forget that. Anyway, I'm not worried because they haven't shown up. I'm worried that all of them will. I'm pissed there's anyone but me and Devin still standing. I put a lot of work into arranging this scene, and I don't want to have to make a bigger one. Not after the old hag made her promise. Oh, Frau Percata. Katie Puff always said that old Aunt Mavis's stories were stupid, and I agreed for a long time. Then Devin found a book of summoning rituals in an old condemned bookstore he'd been asked to clear out, and brought it to me when he recognized her name in it. At that point, Gert was a few months old. My husband Danny was in the sandbox again, and I was desperate enough to be free again that I was willing to try something ridiculous. The schmuck shouldn't have left me with a pair of brats I didn't want. It wasn't my fault my birth control failed. Too bad it only took me a few years to get everybody in one place and get the ritual completely right. I know how my so-called family members feel about me. I've wanted to be rid of all of them since I was a kid. Is it my fault that none of them could take a joke? Or even a little honesty? Drusella's just like Katie and Fred, too all oversensitive. I'm trying to teach her that life screws you over and people won't be nice to you all the time. It's not being mean when it's true, right? Filthy sinners. All of them. Soon sinners. The words have hung on the back of my head for days. And sometimes I think it's a witch talking, even though Devon says she's not a witch, but a spirit. I don't care, as long as she sticks to the plan. Complete freedom in exchange for my idiot relatives. That was the deal. I just wish she'd shut up whispering to me. I had rum for breakfast, to try to drown her out a little. And those few hours of blissful silence were worth all of Drusella's stupid little judgmental glances. Like I didn't see the way she's been leading Bernie on since we've been here. Little tramp. Innocent. The voice sings hoarsely. And then the front of the house explodes. Everybody on the lawn scatters wildly. Whooping and screaming as the wind catches the spewing embers. Everybody except Mason. Who still hasn't moved. Score another one for me. Innocent. There it is again. Makes me wish I'd been smart and snagged that bottle of Glenlivet that Sierra had left on the table. Oh, hey. Looks like Sierra's down beside Mason. Her hair's on fire. 
another one down. This might work out for the good after all. Especially if the next one to combust is whoever wore that god-awful Christmas tree outfit. Those stupid blinking lights gave me a headache. Innocent. Jesus, Percata. Would you shut up already? Do your part. I delivered them all straight to you. Except for Danny. And I'm sure you can come up with a way to deal with him. Innocence. <laughs> that was a thing when Mavis told her Frau Pricotta stories. Always take the sinners, spare the innocents. Bullshit. Did the old woman actually think anybody in this family was innocent? Ignorant? That's another matter. Drusella's ignorant. If that daughter of mine were out here, I'd tell her exactly what my husband's getting up to overseas, and it's not some classified assignment. But then, she thinks he's actually her father. Innocent? No way in hell. Now if that fire would just spread a little more and take out the stragglers, I could walk away and never look back. Of course, I'd have to walk away with Devin, but that's okay. He's still useful to me, and when he's not, I know what to do. Just like my husband and my kids and my whole worthless family. Filthy sinners indeed, and that's my own opinion. Somebody's shouting, though I can't make all the words out over the wind and the roar of the fire. But I distinctly hear, Karen, where's Karen? So I pull my coat's hood around my face and step a little more firmly out of sight. I hope Devin's made some progress. I'd really like to get out of here before the cavalry shows. Something moves in my peripheral vision. I back up again, and my hips bump a tree trunk. The roof of the house caves in with a terrific groan, and the ground shudders under my feet. Innocent. Ricardo whispers, and she... she puts an image in my head. That's the only way to describe it. Suddenly, I'm not looking at the wreck of the house anymore. I'm seeing someone in an upstairs bedroom. It's Jackie. She's carrying a shoebox that somebody's glued buttons to and scribbled all over. Probably her. She's never been right. Or she wouldn't have tangled with Fred Weasel that one time. Once was enough, even if she thinks we all didn't know. Shit, there's not enough vodka in the world to think about that. She sets the box down on an end table, like it's precious. And I, as a captive audience, watch her take a bundle of wadded-up cloth out and lay it on the bed. She opens a stiff fabric and... Oh, God. God, it's her baby. That squashed purple lump is her baby, with frostburn on its cheeks and bloody ice crystals covering its scalp. 
I knew there hadn't been a funeral, but here? She kept it here? Frozen? Innocent. Ricardo whispers again, and I shake my head, finally breaking up the in-house movie, just as the image of Jackie steps up to the bed and sets the comforter on fire. No, I grit my teeth. Ricotta's anger throbs in my temples. She's not innocent if she did that. She's sick. You're not getting out of this. I gave them to you. The babe, she growls, and my bones reverberate. I scrabble to get away, but my shoes skid in the snow, and I thud back against the tree. Skull first. Twigs crackle. The stars dance in my vision. No, not stars. Eyes. Someone grabs my arms from behind and wrenches them back around the trunk. I scream, and the wind snatches the sound away. Even as I recognize the breath in my ear, the wine hasn't lost its bouquet. It's Bernie. He makes a noise like a growl and licks my ear. Then someone else crunches up beside him. Two of them, jostling me. One grabs my hair, wafting cologne that suddenly makes my gut seize up. Tevin, he hadn't found civilization after all. And in front of him, in front of me, Holding a wicked-looking knife is Fred. Oh, no. Guys! I try to twist around, but Devin jerks my head back against the trunk. It's just enough movement for me to see that they've all got this strange gleam in their eyes. Like the reflection of a flickering light. Like fire. Inside my head, Ricotta chuckles. <laughs> now, sinner. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on TheWickedLibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes pages. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier to find your stockings. <laughs>
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.